Welcome to Knowledgeable Aging. I'm your host, Jason Kotar. Joining us today to talk about going once, going twice, sold. The dynamics of selling at auction is Reed Dunavant. Reed is the Senior Vice President and Director of Mid-Atlantic Advisory for Doyle Auctioneers and Appraisers. He supervises estate appraisals and art and antiques evaluations for heirs and collectors. He frequently travels throughout the United States giving, giving lectures, sharing his passion for antique silver, the history of dining, and general collecting trends. In addition, Reed has shared his expertise as an appraiser on the popular television series Antiques Roadshow for 15 consecutive seasons from 2004 to 2020. The presented content does not provide or constitute medical, financial, or legal advice. The content is for information purposes only. Viewing or listening to the content does not constitute a physician-patient, dentist-patient, fiduciary-client, or attorney-client relationship. How are you doing today, Reed? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me, Jason. Very much so. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Before we get started, Reed, for those that are joining us for the live webinar, if you have any questions, type your questions in. Time permitting, we will do everything in our power to get your questions answered. So, Reed, I'd like to get started. When would someone consult an auction house, and under what circumstances is an auction house able to help? Well, first and foremost, you'd want to call an auction house if you suspect that you have something of value, because, of course, that's what auctioneers want, is to sell things of value. Um, an auction house sale is going to result in the fairest and highest price in the quickest amount of time for anything that someone is wishing to sell. And of course, we make our money on commissions when we sell things. Secondly, you want to contact an auction house at times in your life when there are major changes, such as a death, a divorce, major debt, or some downsizing. Uh, and sometimes it's a combination of one or all of those scenarios, uh, more than one or all of those scenarios. Typically in past decades, when someone was breaking up a home, it was a huge one-time event. Someone would die or go to a nursing home or retirement home and everything was dispersed at once. However, today this requires a lot more thought and planning. It's more of a process. Um, so the three Ps, we should say, perhaps, of uh, tearing down, parting with, and passing on objects. Lifestyles have changed so much, and what was currently popular in the market decades ago may or may not be popular today, more often not popular today. That combined with family dynamics have led to a more involved process. Uh, paring down, passing on, and parting with things can be very emotional, and it's not that simple any longer. People are living a lot longer, uh, they're often healthy when it comes time to downsize. There, there's not been a death. They're just moving on to a different, more fun place, uh, frequently retiring to more vibrant locations. Also, families have become more, much more complex and intertwined. They're uh, family, conjoined families from different backgrounds, and they have very different lifestyles, uh, each side of the family might, as well as the children are living in different places and have very different lifestyles. Um, when you might think, as far as your timeline, would you consider contacting an auction house about this paring down process? Or the the, um, the answer is always as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. And why you might ask? Uh, because auction houses don't charge any initial consulting fees. We give a lot of free advice up front, so there's no reason to wait to call us. We only collect our fees when something is sold, so it's in our best interest to be very honest and upfront with you. We want to get the most for something that you sell because we earn only our money on the commission basis. Uh, many people think that you need an appraisal before you sell anything, and that's not completely untrue, but 
we frequently get calls from people asking for, for an appraisal, but what they really want is an evaluation because an appraisal is a very lengthy and time-consuming process. It's also quite expensive to have a professional document prepared, but a consultation fee is often free, and it, and it generally is with most auction houses. Um, you might ultimately need a fair market appraisal for a state tax filing, but you don't necessarily need to pay for an appraisal or wait for an appraisal when you're beginning to downsize or thinking about selling things. And as far as insurance appraisals goes, those are a very different uh, thing altogether. They have zero bearing on what something might sell for in the auction place because people selling uh, are generally private individuals rather than retail businesses and pr uh, prices on insurance appraisals are more at the retail level and are highly inflated compared to the fair market value. As auctioneers, our main goal is to isolate and sell items of value and give the seller a very accurate idea of what something might sell for at auction. However, we can also give advice on the things that we don't sell, such as recommendations on where to donate things or recommendations on where to sell things that we don't sell. We can also give you advice on shippers and movers and, and packing people. We know what it costs to move things, so we can tell you an approximate estimate before you even have to talk to movers about what something might sell for. We can also give you guidance on the cost of selling things because it isn't free to sell things. You must pay commission, sometimes storage, uh, photography, uh, and other fees. We can tell you what the best market might be for your things, whether it's a local market or more of an international market. We can tell you what types of sales your things might sell best in, whether it's a general sale of goods or specialized sales, such as a sale of just jewelry or sale of just paintings. Uh, we can offer you a lot of practical advice too that's not that's free, such as you know never take your jewelry to a care facility with you. That's pretty basic, but you'd be surprised how many people don't understand that. Uh, we'll also be very upfront with you whether it's even worth selling things that are not, because in many cases today furniture is bringing so little money, it's better just to donate it or give it away. You'll come out better with a uh, a tax donation sometimes than you will actually for the cash realized on something. So uh, it's determined that you have something of value that you wish to sell, whether it's a single object or a collection of things. And the next question is, where do I start? Um, you, you, first of all, you want to contact an auction house to find out the best place to start. Um, and you may choose that you don't want to sell it at all. Some people think that, well, you know, I know it's valuable, but I'd like to get donated to a museum. Uh, in today's world, however, that's very unlikely because museums just don't take things anymore. They have a lot of stuff that they're responsible for right already. It takes a lot of money and a lot of time to care for these things and to insure them. And unless your donation of an object comes along with a gift of money to support the care of that thing, they may not take it. And in fact, they rarely do take it. Even thrift stores have gotten very picky about what they'll take. Uh, a lot of antiques that thrift stores were once happy to have, they refuse them if they have the least bit of damage or the need the least bit of repair, especially if, say, for instance, the upholstery is soiled. What kind of auctions are there, Reed? Well, there are auctions of incredible things that are single that are single categories, such as jewelry, which is what this tiara was sold, and that was in a specialized sale of estate jewelry. Um, and those sales are very good because they are uh, very specific to a category. They might have 
three or four hundred pieces of very fine jewelry in them as a single sale. And those pieces of jewelry might not necessarily belong to the same people. In fact, they rarely do belong to the same person. They belong to a variety of different consigners. We also have categories, special categories for contemporary paintings, uh, old master paintings, uh, European 18th and uh, 17th and 18th century furniture, banknotes and coins, stamps. You sort of name it any kind of specialty category that you have, there might be a sale for. But additionally, you have general eclectic categories, which would include more modest value items that would be uh, good quality furniture that might not be necessarily antique, but it could have a mixture of other things, such as a few bits of silver, a few bits of jewelry, a few paintings and other things. And those are sometimes very interesting, but those are more amalgamated sales than the single collection sales. As far as the kinds of auctions that we have in, in, in a way of selling property, we used to have almost exclusively live auctions when I first started in this business decades ago. But then you uh, entered into the component uh, telephone bidding some years later, and people could call uh, would have registered to bid for a telephone bid, and the auction house would call you when that lot came up. You'd have to sit at home and wait by your phone, and they would call and say, lot so-and-so is up. We're getting ready to bid and let you bid on the phone. And then that was, people also would leave left bids with the auctioneer, which the auctioneer would execute on their behalf up to the maximum limit of the bid. And then we began with internet sale, uh, sales where people could bid online and interactively with the sale. And now most auctions are a combination of all of these things. Um, in, the, in this age of COVID, we generally don't have a live auction right now, but I assume in the near future, we'll be going back to some component of that. Um, so uh, as far as online sales, which is, as I said, what we're primarily doing today, some of them have a soft close, which means that uh, a lot will come up for sale uh, and Partic two particular people are actively bidding on that lot and it will continue to go up as long as those two people are bidding until one of them stops and the clock will renew itself every two or three minutes uh, depending on what the, the setup of the, of the bidding situation is until one person finally stops bidding and it is hammered down and that would mean that sometimes the lots that were actually starting before that lot came up would sell as well as the lots that were being offered after that lot came up those would actually close and sell before it sold as long as people were still bidding there's also the hard close which is much like the internet ebay site where a particular lot will sell say at the time published at 702 and at 702 it will sell immediately at that time and the last person bidding if they get their bid in in just under the last couple of seconds will be the bidder and the clock will stop automatically a little bit more about this image here. This is a, a piece of fantastic jewelry. It's a tiara, as you see, and the, and the woman wearing it in the portrait is uh, was a famous woman, or not a famous woman, but a wealthy aristocrat from the Wilson family. And the tiara had descended in the Wilson, Astor, and Vanderbilt families, so it had an incredible provenance. And not that everyone can wear a tiara. In fact, there are not a lot of occasions that anyone would wear a tiara today. And for that reason, it's actually quite rare. Most of these wonderful 18th and 19th century tiaras were broken up and mounted into other pieces of jewelry uh, to be something that people could wear more frequently. But so we put a rather conservative estimate on it. The diamonds and the pearls are extraordinary quality. And uh, 
of the estimate was 80 to 120,000, but it ultimately sold for a little over $420,000 simply because it was so extraordinary and such an uncommon thing. Wow. <laughs> a lot of money <laughs> to, to wear something only a couple of times. Absolutely. So, Reed, how does somebody or can anybody time? This is a two part question. Can anybody time the market? And then also, can you go a little bit more detail on how COVID has affected the auction market? Well, uh, first of all, if your auctioneer or your advisor tells you that this is a good time to sell something, that means that this is a good time to sell something, not next month, not in two years, not in three years, because the market is very volatile and very fluid and it's constantly changing. Uh, everything does not appreciate in value. And what something was valued for 20 years ago is very irrelevant today. What someone paid for something, even yesterday, is very irrelevant today. What an insurance appraisal says is very irrelevant. It's what the value is today. And if you're advised that it's a good time to sell something, you should go ahead and sell it. Uh, there is this huge misconception among a, a, primarily the generation that is downsizing at the moment that uh, everything that is old and antique uh, would have appreciated since they acquired it. But as they're beginning to downsize, they're finding out that that isn't actually true. Uh, the market is just continually changing, particularly with all the new information available on the internet. Um, this chest I've chosen to show is a particular example of how this, uh, this scenario of how it panned out. Uh, the America, this is an American piece of furniture and it was evaluated for insurance purposes for the family that owned it in way back in the 1980s for well over $100,000. And of course, insurance values, as I mentioned, are all very inflated, but the, but the real value should have been somewhere near that $100,000 back in the 1980s. Well, the market had begun to decline for American furniture for various reasons, and prices were steadily going down. So by the time that we were called uh, by this family in, uh, early, in late 2006 to look at this piece of furniture, we told them that it would not bring $100,000, that it was not even close. And they were stunned because they had always believed that the value would be more than $100,000 from their insurance because they had had it insured for that for over 20 years. Mm -hmm. The reason was is that we valued it for estate taxes at $55,000, which was a little aggressive. And the market continued to decline very rapidly so that when they finally put it up for auction a few years later in 2009, we had to reduce the estimate for less than the appraised value to accommodate the changes in the market. We estimated it at thirty-five dollars to $45,000. It was put up for auction and it did not sell. It languished in our warehouse for a while before we were able to sell it privately to someone for only $17,000. So values for uh, some categories, such as American furniture, had dropped as much as 80 to 90% by the time that they finally decided to sell this from the time when it was first evaluated 30 years earlier. Similarly, uh, things, other categories have also uh, soared in value and plummeted in value as well. The Japanese market was extraordinarily hot in the 1980s, and that was fueled by the Japanese manufacturing of automobiles and how they were influencing the world market with uh, automobiles. But then that slowed down. There was a lot of competition from other, other makers in other countries so that 
the Japanese economy took a downturn and as Japanese things because they were supporting the market, the Japanese people themselves were supporting the market for Japanese things. That market went down considerably so that the values for things Japanese were very low. Uh, woodblock prints that had, bringing, had been bringing $2,000 in the 1980s were now bringing $200. And we rarely even take them anymore because their values are so low. Similarly, the Russian market in the early 2000s was fueled by a new uh, capitalist economy and a lot of Russians who were uh, flush with new capitalist money and investment money, and they were finally able to buy things on the open market, uh, were uh, really actively searching to repatriate things and bring them back home. So much so that if you put the word Russian in front of anything in the early 2000s, it was selling for a tremendous amount of money. That market has also rechecked itself, and while values have not plummeted, it's nowhere near what it was uh, 15 years ago or so. What is popular now is, uh, the most popular thing really, is jewelry and personal adornment, in large part because, uh, such as uh, personal adornment, and by that I mean things like handbags and designer scarves, and a lot of that is because people are have not been entertaining at home much, and that isn't COVID-related. They've not been entertaining at home for quite a number of years. Um, a few other categories that are pretty hot right now are rare books and manuscripts, rare documents. Uh, contemporary artwork is very hot. Um, artwork by recognized artists, some silver in some cases. Um, most recently, there's been a surge in popularity of women artists, and that we feel is spurred on by the Me Too movement. Also artists of color, uh, or works from artists of color, uh, and that is fueled by the Black Lives uh, Movement, Black Lives Matter movement. Um, so, uh, and back to the part about COVID, I mentioned that just briefly, but COVID has actually affected the market in a very surprisingly positive way. People are at home, they're not spending money on travel, they're not spending a lot of money on dining out or entertainment out, so they are looking for other ways to entertain themselves, so they're going online, and in addition to shopping online, they have discovered the auction business, and a lot of people were not familiar with auctions before this, so we're finding a lot of new buyers uh, coming to the marketplace that have never bought at auction before. Another thing that's happened as far that's been affected, uh, has affected auctions, from COVID is that uh, our expenses have gone down tremendously. Uh, we don't have exhibitions, live exhibitions anymore. The live component of an auction isn't there anymore, so we don't have staffing issues for either one of those. Uh, we also have reduced our uh, advertising budget tremendously because there is a lot less print advertising going out. We're focused primarily on uh, online advertising, and that's significantly cheaper than print media. Then um, we're also, we used to print catalogs for each and every sale that were color, and those could cost, you know, $20,000, $40,000 per auction to print a catalog, and that is out the window. We're no longer doing that. Um, what people often think is valuable, another, you know, I mentioned, you know, we, if you think you have something valuable, call us, but even if you don't necessarily think you have something valuable, we're always happy to talk to you about things if you send us photographs. Because very often what people have that they think is valuable is in fact not what is valuable. This particular painted blanket chest at first sight looks very common because these were very common in New England uh, and they're painted blanket chests and you see them uh, a lot in Pennsylvania and uh, New York State. 
as well as Massachusetts. However, there are examples that were done south of the Mason-Dixon line, and those are quite, quite rare. So we were called to look at a bunch of French furniture from an elderly French woman in Alexandria, Virginia, that she had inherited from her family, and she thought the French furniture was quite valuable. The market for French furniture has not been especially valuable for quite some time. It's been a tough market, but I went there knowing that it wasn't necessarily going to be worth a lot of money, but hoped that I might see something else. So we walked around. I broke the bad news to her about the French furniture and stepped out on the glassed-in back porch and saw this blanket chest, and I asked about that, and she said, well, that can't possibly have any valuable that was from my husband's family and they were just poor farmers from North Carolina and they had nothing. So I said, well, you know, it is a southern piece of furniture. And if you, you know, this was a New England piece of furniture, it wouldn't be worth a lot of money, maybe a thousand or fifteen hundred dollars at best. But this is quite rare. So we sent it to auction with a rather conservative estimate, more than a thousand dollars, but not much more than ten thousand. Ultimately, it sold for over $270,000 because it is an extraordinary rare thing. What could have happened, though, had she not called an auction house? She didn't think that was valuable. It could have ended up in a junk pile or taken to a thrift store or possibly worse. Someone could have stripped that paint off of it, and then it would have been worthless. Sorry. No, that's (laughs) fine. Um, So what is an auction estimate, Reed, and why does it matter? Well, an auction estimate is a is just a guesstimate, for lack of a better word. It is what an auction house and our best experience and research and, and knowledge would place on an item to indicate to the seller what they might expect an, their item to sell for, as well as an indication to the prospective bidders of what they might have to pay for that auction. Uh, but it's, it's a very... Uh, kind of curious thing to navigate. You, If you put the estimate too high on something, people are going to focus on what is wrong with that item and perhaps not be interested in bidding on it. You want, If you put the estimate lower, you're going to cause people to focus on what is good about the object uh, in order to lead them in and want them to be able to bid on it. In that scenario, they might overlook the flaws. Uh, this particular painting, for example, Uh, We knew that it was very valuable and it was very good, but we didn't know exactly what it might be worth. So we had placed an estimate of uh, $30,000 to $50,000 on it. And a little bit about the painting. It was, um, this is a painting of Pauline Bonaparte. She was the younger sister of Napoleon Bonaparte. And this painting was painted by a very famous female painter, um, Marie-Victoire Lemoyne. And it was painted in 1799 and exhibited at the Salon in Paris. Uh, The artist was actually a student of another very famous artist uh, by the name of Marie Vigie Lebrun. So it has three women related in its history. And of course, I mentioned earlier that women painters uh, are very popular right now and things related to women are very popular. Uh, So it was a good time for it to come up for sale. Now, the painting had been known since, of course, since it was exhibited in 1799, and it was known that uh, Pauline Bonaparte gave the painting to her younger brother, Joseph, who left uh, France and immigrated to the United States and lived in New Jersey. And after his death in New Jersey, it was sold and ended up in the same family for nearly 200 years. 
but the whereabouts of the painting, uh, even though it was known the last owners were this family, it wasn't known that they still owned it or its whereabouts. And we were contacted by a woman who was from that family that said she had this painting and it had been in storage for many years. Another piece of free advice, never ever store anything. It can cause a lot of damage. Also, the fees for storage can add up and be a tremendous amount of money over a num quite a number of years. In fact, when we gave her the estimate of, on the painting of thirty to $50,000, her reply was, well, maybe we'll recoup the storage fees for all the years that it's been in storage because it was approaching that figure. Wow. I know, hard to believe, but you know, you have something for several decades in storage and thirty to $50,000 does not sound like a lot of money for, for 40 years worth of storage. So anyway, we uh, knew that it had some condition issues, primarily because it had been in storage. The canvas uh, had been relined, and because of that and the storage conditions, there were a lot of bubbles in the painting. Uh, the canvas was lifting, some of the paint was flaking off, so it wasn't in the best of conditions, but it was a very important painting. Our initial instincts were is that if it didn't have these condition issues, it probably was worth a hundred to two hundred thousand dollars. But we put this conservative estimate on it because of the condition issues. And when it came up for auction, it brought three hundred and eighty-seven thousand dollars. A lot of that strategic um, mark our strategic pricing, our strategic estimate on it. In fact, it was funny, I called the owner of the painting after it had sold, and of course she had in her mind dollars to $50,000. So when I told her it sold for $387,000, she said thank you, was kind of unemotional about it. And then she called me back a few minutes later and said, I think I misheard you. Did you say $38,700 or $387,000? <laughs> So yeah, that was a good story. We like to have these good stories. Absolutely. <laughs> well, Reed, I'd like to shift a little bit. So why would someone choose one auction house over another? Well, as I mentioned earlier, there's several different kinds of sales. They are sales of mixed uh, owners where various property is collected under a particular theme. And uh, you know, an internet, if you have something that is very valuable, such as a painting like the old master painting of Pauline Bonaparte, you want that to be exposed to an international audience. Uh, so, you know, you certainly want it to go to an auction house with an international presence and probably in a specific category sale like that. In fact, that painting ended up going to a museum in Australia, uh, a, women, a museum that is dedicated to women. So, uh, we certainly found the right buyer for it by putting it into a special category sale. Um, if you have more general household goods with a spattering of antiques, a few bits of silver that are of modest value, a couple of paintings that are pretty, but they're not incredible, you might really want to go to your local auction house or your regional auction house. And the reason for that is very often those things will be quite common in a more major auction house and they might not bring as much money as they do in a more local market. Uh, if you have something, if you're fortunate enough to have inherited a collection of things that were put together or owned by a famous person, that should most certainly go to an auction house with an international presence because uh, the uh, collection as a whole uh, is more interesting and more valuable than the individual parts of the collection. So, uh, for instance, we've been very fort fortunate to sell a lot of uh, 
collections that uh, from estates of famous persons uh, without saying, I don't want to drop too many names, but a lot of celebrities uh, as well as famous people in the arts and music. Um, we have additionally sold uh, collections that were put together by interior designers that are household names or names that people in the design business are quite familiar with. And those always do exceedingly well because they have the stamp of approval of a particular designer on them. People are always happy to buy something, even if it's an ordinary piece of upholstered furniture, and say, well, this was from a home decorated by Bunny Williams, or this came from a home that was decorated by Robert Easton or Robert Denning. Uh, we've even sold collections of some famous designers, such as Oleg Cassini, and those things always do extraordinarily well. Does an individual have to be famous to be considered for a single owner collection? And are there any tips on recognizing a collection that is appropriate for auction and might have potential to sell well? Well, first, the, the, the immediate answer to that question is absolutely not. You don't have to necessarily be famous to sell something successfully at auction. Um, if you have a good collection, if you've been a great collector and you've put together lovely things, even if they are of modest value, it's certainly worth going to a major auction house to sell. Uh, it takes a long time to, you know, sometimes decades to put together a good cohesive collection of a particular thing, and people love a curated eye. For instance, the image here you see is a collection of match safes and card cases that are all sterling silver, and this was assembled over several decades by a couple. And if anyone is collecting match safes today, they might find a random one here and there in a sale uh, because people did not have multiples of these. You might only have, if you were a private person, you might only have one match safe. So it would take decades for somebody to put together a collection of this caliber and this quantity. So that you have a lot of people that are very interested in bidding on things when there are this many of a particular category of item that would come to auction. And prices typically are very strong. Now, these are not expensive things. These things were $50 up to several hundred, maybe a 1000 or $1,500 would, be, would have been the most expensive one. But there was a strong following and a very focused group of buyers to bid on them. And they all sold and they all sold very well. Uh, as opposed to just having one match safe in a sale with a bunch of jewelry or one match safe in a sale with a bunch of silver. This was a very cohesive collection and it did very, very well. Uh, that goes with any sort of curated thing. Uh, we've actually had a collection of Barbie dolls that we sold as part of an estate some years ago and I would have never thought we would have been selling Barbie dolls before, but as far as Barbie dolls go, it was probably the most valuable collection of Barbie dolls ever to come up at auction. It brought over a million dollars. It was just a bunch of Barbie dolls. Wow. So. Wow. Well, this is wonderful stuff, Reed. So how can people find you? So, well, uh, my name, as you said, is Reed Dunavant, and I'm going to spell that for you. It's R-E-I-D-D-U-N-A-V-A-N-T, and I am at the Washington, D.C., Maryland, Virginia Regional Office, which is located in Kensington, Maryland. And our phone number here is 301-348-5282. And my email is my name with a period between it, Reed, R-E-I-D, period, Dunavant, D-U-N-A-V, V is in Victor, D-U-N-A-V-A-N-T at doyle.com. 
Very good. As far as all of our webinars, you can go to see the archive webinars on our website, knowledgeableaging.com. You can also go to our YouTube page, type in Knowledgeable Aging. I encourage you to subscribe. We update that four to five times per week. If podcasts are your thing, you can go to Spotify, Apple Tunes, et cetera. Until next time, I'm your host, Jason Kotar, and this is Knowledgeable Aging.